Welcome to the School of Wellbeing. I'm your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker and teacher wellbeing specialist. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and waters on which this podcast is being recorded. Hello and welcome to episode 115. What makes school life so rewarding is the relationships we form with others. And on the flip side, what makes school life so demanding are our relationships with others. Being able to create a safe space for ourselves and others to thrive is a skill. And like all skills, it can be learned with practice, compassion and support. Because at the end of the day, the research is pretty clear. The key to quality teaching and learning is quality relationships. And if I was to take this notion one step further, the quality of a school is determined by the quality of the relationships. As a speaker walking into schools across the country each week, I can get a pretty good gauge of the culture from simply seeing how students and staff interact. The most obvious sign that things are going pretty well and relationships are robust is laughter. It makes my heart sing to see staff and students having a laugh in the corridor, seeing staff having a laugh in the staff room, or a student having a laugh with a leader on duty. The more laughter I see and hear, the easier and more enjoyable my job becomes. So as we settle into a new school year, I thought it would be a good time to chat with the wise and warm Vicky Essebag about practical ways to bring a little more compassion and curiosity into our relationships this year. Vicky is a public speaker, instructional leader, consultant, and author that brings together her experiences as a teacher, school leader, parent, family therapist, and solution-focused coach. She is known for adapting the solution-focused brief therapy model to support effective relationships within families, schools, and organizations. Vicky's new book is Relation Spaces, a solution-focused handbook for parents. In this conversation, we discuss what is a relation space, the benefits of a solution-focused approach, how we can improve the quality of our relationships, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Vicky Essebag. Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you, Meg. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about your new book, Relation Spaces, a solution-focused handbook for parents. What led you to write this book? My background is sort of twofold. I grew in the school system as a teacher, a guidance counselor, a curriculum consultant, and a vice principal. And at the same time, I was also working part-time as a family therapist and solution-focused coach and trainer. And because I was so embedded in schools, I was always looking for how to bring wellness and well-being to schools. That's actually what drew me to your podcast, right? Because that was always my priority, was how do I bring wellness to schools? And so I came to guidance counselors first. 
because I was one. And I said, hey, guys, you know what? This solution-focused stuff is fantastic, and it would really work well in schools. How about we do some training for guidance counselors? So I was doing that for a while, and then guidance counselors came to me and said, Vicki, you know what? I also teach English, or I also teach history, or whatever, and this stuff is great in classrooms. Can you somehow spin it more as a communicative tool for everyone as opposed to a counseling model? And that's where I kind of sat back and scratched my head and said, they're absolutely right. I need to be doing this. So I developed a curriculum, which I called solution-focused communication. Little did I know, I wasn't the only one that was doing that. All over the world, solution-focused brief therapy was taking off in education and business and medicine because people discovered this stuff is so valuable in relationship. And of course, once I retired from the board, my perception of solution-focused communication began to evolve. And it evolved into what I call relation spaces. And so when I thought about writing a book, I thought, yes, of course I can write a book for schools. I've been teaching curriculum of this type for schools for years, but I want to write a book specifically for parents this time. Of course, it's going to have an educational spin because I'm an educator, but I want to write it for parents because I really understand what parents go through on a daily basis with their children and their families. And I really think that these skills are so valuable. And so I wanted to bring that to the parent community. So this is what the book looks like, Solution-Focused Handbook for Parents, Relation Spaces. This is such a beautiful story, Vicky. Your experiences are so deep and so rich from working with families and working with young people and working with your colleagues and leading schools to bring it together in a way that makes sense. So what is a solution-focused approach? So, you know, people ask me, they say, Vicky, all of this solution-focused stuff, right? I don't know if I believe it to be a good idea because I think that what we're doing is ignoring problems. And what I want to say right here and now is solution focus does not at all ignore problems. It just helps us to see problems differently. It helps us to illuminate problems with hope and to spin problems in such a way that we're able to delve into new solution-oriented territory. And why is that so good? It's so good because how often will you find that you're in a conversation with someone and you talk about the problem, whatever the issue is, and we talk about it and we talk about it and we talk about it and somehow we just get muddled in it. We never get past the problem into the solutions. Sometimes it takes forever. So solution-focused approaches, what that does for us is it helps us to move right into the solutions without ignoring the problem. We're still talking about the problem. So if I was to say to you, for example, Meg, you're in the classroom and you're experiencing a lot of frustration with your students. If the situation were different, what would that look like for you? That's a solution-focused question. It's a future-oriented, it's what we call future-oriented, solution-focused question. What would that look like for you? If things were different, of course, you're going to tell me about the problem when you respond to that question. Of course, we're going to talk about the problem, but we're going to be talking about it in terms of what it can be instead. So that is an example of how we can approach problems differently. 
Yes, what a beautiful invitation for us to approach problems differently. It can be so easy to get stuck in the problem and talk about the problem over and over and over again. And it becomes a habit. I know in my teaching days, there were certain people that I used to talk with in the corridors. And if I refer back now, we had the same conversations on repeat. I complained about the problem. They complained about the problem. I complained, they complained. And that became our communication. And the idea of solving the problem or brainstorming around possible futures, that didn't come into it. Right. Definitely. And another thing we do in Solution Focus is we try to understand and notice small, small pieces that are working. So even in the midst of havoc, so you've got a family that is experiencing havoc on a daily basis, let's say with a very challenging child, right? Even in the midst of that, we ask ourselves, okay, well, what is working though? Because even a child who has experiences challenges or behavioral challenges, let's say, that child is not experiencing those problems 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So when that child is not experiencing those problems, what's happening? What's working? What kinds of personal strengths is the child using to help themselves be better behaved? So the child has resources, personal resources. We all have them. And so with Solution Focus, we aim to look for those resources and capitalize on them so that we can use them again in different contexts. Yes, it's reminding me of one of my favorite lecturers. And one day I was talking to her about a student that I was really challenged by and I was stuck in the problem. And she said this beautiful line of Meg, catch them being good, I dare you. Yes, exactly. Minimize the problem in the sense that we're not ignoring it, but we're making an effort to look beyond the problem to be able to see what's good in there because there's always good in there. And when we do that with children who are misbehaving, they realize that we're doing that and they like it. Now they realize that we are noticing that they have attributes because what tends to happen with children who misbehave a lot is if they're getting a lot of negative attention and that's all the attention they're getting, they might as well go for it and keep seeking out the negative attention. It's better than nothing. So we want to aim to shift that so that they can start to want to behave differently. And the nice thing about it is that it's not like, oh, I'm going to be better behaved. It's, oh, wait a second. Yeah, that's right. I know how to be better behaved. Yes, I love that distinction. And I think this is such powerful information for educators to consider and also to think about the family system, because I'm guessing that the intensity of this is amplified when you're working with families. Absolutely, because especially families today. I mean, I know that obviously there were many challenges during the whole period of COVID. We know that. But families today, by and large, they see each other first thing in the morning before school, then their school, and then they see each other at the end of the day. And so they got these little pockets of time where they're expected to pull everything together, right? They're expected to be organized and have the meals going and get the homework done and have the bedtime routines. And everybody's supposed to juggle all of the extracurricular activities very smoothly and all of this. And it's almost an impossible task. In fact, sometimes I wonder how we ever actually achieve all of it. And yet somehow, surprisingly, families do, but not without a lot of stress and stress. 
strain. There's a lot of stress and strain attached to that. So how do we move away from the busyness of parenting that really takes up so much of our time and energy and really shift to the quality of the relationships that we have with our children? And it's not about the amount of time that we have with them. It's about how we intentionally bring ourselves to that relation space. And there I'm using because to me, every relationship that we have with each person is actually a different relation space. And what we're doing is we're looking to see how can we bring our best self to that relation space and how are we looking for the best in our children so that we can actually engage in a productive relationship. And that's really the starting point. There's an intentionality there. And you'll know that even before we get to the solution-focused questions or the solution-focused language, you'll know that if you think about somebody in your life who has really made an incredible impact on you, it's not even necessarily about what that person said to you. It all begins with intention. How did they bring themselves to you? Maybe they were supportive. Maybe they were kind. Maybe they showed you that they were present for you. They were listening. They were interested. And so these are the feelings that we actually remember these people in a very organic way. It's not necessarily about what they said. So even before we start engaging in conversation, how do we bring ourselves to that relation space? I love the idea of thinking about each relationship having its own space, its own unique feeling, sense, purpose, and really considering how do I want to show up in this space with this human at this time? So what can get in the way of us being present to our relation spaces? That's a really good question. And I think it's a complex answer, right? Some of it may be the stress in our lives, the fact that we're limited with time. Some of it may be previous experiences that we've had. Or maybe sometimes in family, we all have a blueprint of family that we grew up with. And sometimes there's really good stuff in that blueprint and sometimes there's not so good stuff. But it's all a part of the fabric of who we are. And sometimes that blueprint it gets in the way of our current day parenting. And so, you know, maybe we're holding back in some ways, or maybe we're doing things or saying things that maybe we shouldn't be, or, you know, it's really complex. But I do think that at the end of the day, we're human beings and we're going to have good days. We're going to have bad days. And we're also going to have different types of relationships with our different children. We will connect more with some children than with others. It's just the way that we will click. So there's a variety of contributing factors, I think. And it's probably worth considering what is that baggage that we may bring to a relationship. There are some people that it's just easier to get along with. I know as a teacher, when you start a new year, there are just some students that you get instantly. You don't have to think too much about it. You probably see a little bit of yourself in them. So they're, okay, I've got them sorted. I understand them. There's another patch where you're like, "Mm, not quite sure. And then there's this other patch like, wow, this feels really different for me. I don't really have a blueprint here and I'm not quite sure. And as professionals, 
professionals, it's our job to work with that relationship, to create that space to have a relationship, knowing that it's going to take a little bit more effort than the ones that are just easier. Absolutely. And, you know, those students that present as more difficult, that is their coping strategy. That's what they do for whatever reason, whatever is motivating them or whatever habit forming behaviors they have or whatever their history is. They're coming into that class and they want to be noticed in ways that are not necessarily good ways. And they're the ones that really irritate the teacher. And so I think that if we can, from the very beginning, of the school year from day one, if we can just look beyond those behaviors and see the best in those children and only notice and verbalize the best that we see in them. So to praise them for little things that we notice, oh, maybe they're sitting nicely or maybe they've raised a really unique question, or maybe they're collaborating with their peer and they're helping their peer out or whatever small thing. Maybe they arrived on time. Maybe they actually brought their book, right? But we only notice that. And if at all possible, we don't notice the behavior that's really showing itself. We don't notice the misbehavior. And so we don't verbalize it, if at all possible. Sometimes we have to, but what I would recommend in a situation like that where you have to verbalize the behavior because, you know, Johnny has just pushed Agatha, which is not okay. We're not going to be ignoring that type of thing. My recommendation in that regard would be to show Agatha empathy and appreciation in the moment and to make sure that she's okay and to pull Johnny aside privately at a later moment to have a private, respectful conversation to say, I noticed what happened. It's not really the right thing to do. We don't want to be doing that kind of thing. And I know that you can control that behavior. And I know that the next time you're going to be able to do it. So we're not giving the child the opportunity to grandstand or to get that negative attention in front of their peers. We are respecting and honoring their privacy. And we're having that respectful interaction. I can't say enough about respectful interactions. We all deserve them. Teachers deserve to be interacted with respectfully. Students, parents, children, family members, we all deserve that. And if we don't get that, we're going to look for attention in different ways. And that is such a common example where you've got one student, the Johnny, who's pushed the Agatha and by default will go to the Johnny, shouldn't have done that, and then come to Agatha. That's the default. And what you're giving us here is a new way, a little bit more strategic way of acknowledging the experience for the Agatha and then allowing things to diffuse a little bit and then coming back to Johnny and having that conversation in a really respectful way. And it makes me think of something that I heard working in prisons. When people work in prisons as a prison officer, they're advised never to address a prisoner when other people are around. They talk about putting them on show. You don't want to put a prisoner on show because then you've backed them into a corner where they have to keep that hierarchy. Then they're going to do everything everything impossible to keep their status amongst their peers. So it's not a good thing to address a prisoner amongst their peers on show. However, you do it at a quiet time when other people aren't around. Like This is actually quite striking because we can use this in our school settings. Are we having times where we're putting our young people who are already distressed on show so it's highlighting their behavior and then that reinforces to them that they have to keep doing that to play that role in the 
the classroom. Absolutely. And they will. And not only will they keep acting out, it will get worse until there is that blowout between the student and the teacher. The power struggle, that kind of behavior where the teacher is coming down on the student because the student is acting out and the the student is pushing back, that type of power struggle is a no-win situation. It's going nowhere. We got to break that. And that happens with parents and children as well. It's like, you know, you broke your curfew and you came in late. You were supposed to be home on a school night at nine o'clock and you were home at 12. And now it's the major blowout. That's not going to get us anywhere. The child is just going to feel disrespected. My parents don't understand me. They don't understand what I'm going through. I can't communicate with them. There's no opportunity for conversation there. It's done. So one of the principles of relation spaces is reflection. How do we invite inquiry and reflection in a conversation rather than all the information and advice giving? We believe as adults, whether we're teachers or parents, we believe that it's our duty, our responsibility to guide our children and to tell them what is right and to give them the advice and all of that. They don't want to hear any of that. And if we give them an opportunity to reflect, to have the reflective adult conversation where we ask them, where we sit down with them at a quieter moment and say, okay, let's talk about last night. So you arrive home at midnight. What might have worked better than that? And then we're throwing it back on the child for them to explore what's going on. And now they see they don't need to be on the defensive. They can see that we're not attacking them. We really want to explore the issue. And suddenly they feel heard and they want to have the conversation. So if this were to happen again, obviously you were over at Martha's house, you know, she was having a few friends over, you really wanted to be there. So if this type of thing were to happen again, how might you manage it? It's not how I want you to manage it. How might you manage it? You're the responsible young person, right? How would you manage it next time? What are your best hopes? next time? What would make sense for you next time? If you were faced with a serious dilemma, the same type of dilemma next time, how might you act on it? So we're asking all of these questions to encourage the child to sit back and say, yeah, this is an issue that I can parse through. And suddenly they're engaged in the conversation and there's no power struggle. And the message we're sending there is, I love you. It's unconditional love. And I respect the fact that we all make mistakes and you made a mistake. Okay, so what? Let's move on, but let's learn from it. And there is so much respect in that conversation. It feels gentle. It feels curious. It feels open. And using that experience for that young person to build the self-knowledge of, oh, okay, I crossed the line here. Next time, what could be possible for me? And as you're sharing, I'm thinking about the principles that I work with. And so many of the principals that I'm working with, they're really working on the ability to hold space for their teachers in their heads of department because they're noticing more and more that their teachers and heads of departments want them to solve it, want them to fix situations. They're coming into their offices saying that I need this, I need this, you have to do this. And principals are really leaning into this ability to be like, oh, 
Oh, let's get curious here. By default, they want to solve, they want to provide the solution, but by design, they're getting more strategic to sit back and notice, okay, what's going on for this teacher? How can I listen to them? But also, how can I gently move them towards solutions? Like, oh, this sounds tricky. What have you tried? What's working for you? What do you think you could do? Which is a very different approach to our default. Yes, it is. And I think that I definitely think that it's a better approach than the default because at the end of the day, teachers want to have a voice. At the end of the day, they don't want to be told what to do. You know, teachers are amazing, creative, educated, hardworking people. They have lots of good insights and ideas. Ultimately, they do not need to be told what to do, but they need to have a voice. They need to be heard. And I think that's where we develop that concept around conversation in the relations space to be able to say, we can share our ideas with each other. Sometimes we'll be able to use your ideas and sometimes we won't, but that's okay. We may. So it's important to have the conversation, the open conversation, and to learn from each other and to do the critical thinking together because who knows what's going to come of that. And that's the invitation of these spaces. They're literally collaborative spaces in relationship. And it's a different power dynamic than the traditional power over, I know all the things I'm going to fix. Yes. And sometimes we get caught up in that in schools, don't we? We get caught up with the teacher feeling that way with their students, the administrator feeling that way with their teachers. And sometimes when it's advantageous to the student, the student will say, I want my teacher to tell me what to do when it's advantageous. And the teachers will do the same thing with their administrators. But ultimately, nobody really wants to be told what to do. Everybody really ultimately wants to have some level of voice and they should. We all should. And so this is what our relation spaces can offer is a voice for both people, where both people in that space, their needs are being heard and listened to. Because I'm thinking back to family systems and how often it can be where there's the difficult one in the family, but then there's the perfect one in the family. So I'm thinking about the curfew. There's the one that broke curfew, but the other one, oh, she would never break curfew. She's perfect. And how that dynamic can play out in families. Yes. And this is the fascinating thing about the quote unquote perfect child. Beware of of the perfect child because they appear not to need parenting. They appear not to need guidance. They're the ones that are always getting their homework done. It's getting done on time. They're doing really well at school. They're listening to their parents. They're following the rules. You know, they're looking at their sibling and they're saying, yeah, you're mucking it up all the time, but I've got it together, right? They're just on it. But we really, really have to be careful with those children because while they may be able to be handling their lives well, they still need parental guidance. They still need the support. They still need the conversations. They still need to have an opportunity to sift through problems with caring adults. Because what can happen with those children is they get themselves into jackpots. They just don't talk about it. Because sometimes they're so strained to do the right thing and to make the right choices, but they don't have enough information. So that's where you land up with the 15-year-old child who's pregnant. 
everything's been going smoothly, but suddenly they turn up pregnant. Things like this happen because they're effectively parenting themselves. Because if you're a parent and you've got the troublesome child and you've got the child that's doing everything right, how much time are you really going to give to the child that's doing everything right? You're just going to thank your lucky stars you've got a child like that and spend more energy on the other child. But what I'm saying is we need to be there for all of our children. We may need to be there for them differently, but we have to be there for them. And we have to open up those dialogues and ask them, what is a complex question that you're dealing with today? What is something that you noticed today or that you're thinking about? Yeah, it could just be. And that's the other thing, right? This is not about, oh, we always have to have serious conversations with our children. It could be small talk. It could be the little chit chat in the car over dishes. It could be like sitting up in the back. It could be over a pitch and catch or a nice walk. It could be really light and fun. And this is how our children talk with their peers. This is why they talk with their peers. It's stress-free. It's supportive. It's kind. It flows. And it should be the same thing with parents. It should be a comfortable exchange. It should not be, I'm the parent and I'm the authority. And now we have to have the serious conversation, even though at the end of the day, we are the authority. It's just how we handle authority that we need to be conscious and careful about. But we do have to guide our children and we do have to be responsible for them. I think that's such a powerful point that just because someone is perceived as low maintenance, it could be our children, it could be a student, it could be a colleague, it doesn't mean that they're not thinking about things. It doesn't mean that they don't have their own rich internal dialogue and struggles and things that they're pondering and how we by design can really be strategic in opening up that conversation with that really efficient educator that is doing really well like oh I'm really curious what are you noticing here at the moment what's happening here at the school because they've probably got a really good grasp on what's really going on and if we spend all our time in that problem box we're probably missing out on all this beautiful witnessing and noticing and information that we could be gathering in our staff room, in our classrooms, and also in our homes. Absolutely. And it's also an opportunity for those staff members and for anyone to share. Yes, they're going to be able to share all the wonderful things that they're doing, but maybe they'll also be honest and open. It's a non-threatening conversation. Maybe they'll be honest and open about what's not working out. And then maybe that could lead into a conversation about how they can be improving upon things and, and what can work for them. So so it is important to open up the dialogue. Teachers who are doing a great job are often overlooked. We don't offer enough appreciation for all of the wonderful things that they do. And I think that appreciation goes a long way to be able to appreciate our educators, our students, and our families and our parents to show appreciation. Parents are so grateful when we do the slightest little thing for them. In the school system, we invite them for a graduation tea and, and we put some flowers on the table and some tablecloths and we bake cookies for them and serve them tea. And they're so grateful because they're being appreciated. And we don't always remember to appreciate people who are doing wonderful things for other human beings. So I do think that appreciation goes a long way. And really tapping into this wealth of knowledge that is in our schools day after day that has so much to offer us. I get excited thinking about those hardworking teachers that probably listen to this podcast week in and week out and 
they're building this knowledge, they're doing new things, going along, doing it all quietly, sort of under the radar, how much they have to offer in their schools if someone was willing to create that space with them to really hear their thoughts and ideas and yearnings. Yes. Our challenge in schools is to create forums for that. And what tends to happen in schools is that we will have the meeting or we will have the professional learning opportunity or we will have the staff gathering for whatever purpose. But how often do we just create a forum for rich conversation? Just you know, one of the nice things that we did, oh, this was before COVID, and we decided that we wanted to inspire well-being in the school. And so what we did was we created a lunchtime coffee house in the drama room. And we did this now, obviously, we couldn't do it once a week. It was too much to do it once a week. But I think we were trying to do it once every two weeks or once every three weeks where we would set up tables and tablecloths and you could bring your lunch or we would have little snacks and you can just sit and have conversations with people. And it might be other educators that you would normally not see because they're not in your department. And it wasn't in the form of a meeting. There wasn't a topic or work that needed to be done. It was just about bringing people together just to spend some quality time and little things like that. And I know that this is happening in all schools. All schools are working so hard to bring the well-being into the school. But we need to be mindful when we're bringing well-being into the school to recognize that rich and supportive conversation is a part of that. It's a part of that. And, and we need to be mindful about our intention behind that conversation and how we're making those conversations happen and maybe even teach some of these skills to our educators and to each other and the students so that everybody has an understanding of how they can bring their best selves to that conversation. Because we know that there are people who bring themselves to conversations and you don't really want to have the conversation with them. Oh, yes. There are people that when they call, you think, oh, gosh, not now. I just don't have the energy for this conversation right now. Or you see them in the corridor and you quickly change direction. And so I love that as a simple strategy. How can we create space for deep and meaningful conversation and also surface level conversation. How can we create conversation spaces? And just the other day, I was at a conference. I quite enjoy conferences because you get to meet lots of people and you see different things. But my favorite session is always the panel session when you have three or four people that are really open, really curious, willing to share, very generous with their knowledge. And that conversation is always so rich. And as I walked away from that, I was thinking, imagine if in schools, instead of having a staff meeting one day, we actually had a panel session one day for four educators who were willing to talk about their well-being, what works for them, what doesn't. When they get wobbly, what do they do? When they're up and about, what's happening for them? Who supported them on their journey? You could have someone with young kids. You could have someone with aging parents. You could have an early career teacher. And what a rich conversation that could be, tapping into the knowledge and wisdom in your own space. And and so this is what's available to us. And this is why I love your work so much is about we can do so much. We can bring out the best in other people. We can create spaces and it requires us to move beyond what we've always done, to be a little bit more strategic in our approach to relationship. 
groups. Absolutely. And I think it also requires us to think a little bit differently about success. So another principle of relation spaces is success. Society has a very skewed vision of success right? It's success is all about the great achievements, the great accomplishments. We've got heroes and we've got great athletes and performers. And at school, we've got the A plus student and the student who's mastered the violin. And it's all about achieving the very best. And we put a lot of pressure on our children, on our students, on our staff, on our parents. Everybody wants to be the best that they can be. And what happens when you set up expectations like that? that is that they're truly overblown expectations. And because they're so difficult to achieve, we end up very stressed and feeling that we don't belong in that space. Maybe we shouldn't bother trying. Maybe we shouldn't bother going down that road. Maybe we're not good enough. So my sense about that vision of success is that it's not inclusive. And here we are trying to be inclusive in schools. And so my sense is that what we need to do in these relation spaces is to focus on the value of incremental learning and not to put so much energy into the outcome. So for example, if my child is coming home from school, instead of saying, what did you get on the test? I might say instead, what did you learn today? Because it's the learning itself that is valuable. And we want to be able to say the same to our teachers. They've just had a really hard day. What did you learn today? Tell me about something in your day that you can feel proud of. Tell me something that you learned. Because learning itself is valuable and success happens in small cumulative steps. And sometimes we'll master the thing and sometimes we won't master the thing. And that's okay. They're both good. But I think that there is a lot of value to that in our relationships. Because if we can send this message that we don't have to be perfect, that we're all human beings in this world, in the learning spaces, trying things out, failing, trying again, the whole growth mindset piece, that this is good stuff. That's how we learn and that's how we grow, by making mistakes and it's all good and we don't have to be perfect. I think that's a strong message. If we didn't have to walk around always feeling that we had to be the perfect parent or the perfect child or the perfect student or teacher, we would just take a deep breath, wouldn't we? We'd know that we matter simply because we are who we are. We don't have to do the thing to matter or to be valued. We're valuable just because we are. Oh, Vicky, you have given us so much to think about. What a rich conversation. To wrap up this conversation, I would love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Okay. I am inspired by. I'm inspired by compassion. When life feels hard. I remind myself what I'm grateful for. An underrated skill is? Underrated skill. I don't know if I want to say it because I'm an educator, but these days an underrated skill is spelling. And I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to continuing to have really rich conversations with people. Vicky, thank you so much for the work that you are doing to bring together this depth of knowledge and experience into a way that really makes sense to help us improve the quality of our relationships to ultimately improve the quality of our lives. So thank you for your work and thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much, Meg. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
Vicky's book, Relation Spaces, a solution-focused handbook for parents, is now available to purchase online. To learn more about Vicky and the incredible work she's doing in the world, see the show notes for more details. In this great big sea of podcasting, the School of Wellbeing is a little fish. So if you find value in these conversations and would like more teachers to be tuning in, here are four ways you can support the show. Subscribe to the show on your podcast app, share this episode with a colleague, leave a five-star rating or write a short review. Honestly, the reviews don't have to be long and profound. It could simply be, thank you, love it. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 115. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing. And until next time, take care and take deliberate action.